This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Audible. As you are no doubt aware, Audible is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks. At any time, you can go to my website, worldwar2podcast.net, click on the Audible link, and sign up for a free 30-day trial membership. For doing this, you get a free audiobook and a 30% discount on additional purchases for as long as you keep the membership. Of course, you can cancel at any time and keep the free audiobook, or you can continue on and select one of their convenient memberships, whichever one best meets your needs. This week, I would like to recommend Escape from the Deep, the epic story of a legendary submarine and her courageous crew by Alex Kershaw. So yeah, I know this is way in our future, but I stumbled on this and I couldn't stop reading. The USS Tang, stationed in the Pacific, was one of the deadliest submarines around. Dodging mines and depth charges, and by 1944, they had taken on more combat action than any other Allied sub. But then, the sub and crew become victim of one of their own malfunctioning torpedoes. And nine men from the original 80-member crew survived. They were captured by a Japanese patrol boat, and these men would have to pay for their legendary status. They were tortured up until the day that they were rescued, but they stayed defiant and told their story. So if you're interested in naval history, or, like me, want to understand the Pacific War better, check out this book. You won't regret it. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II, Episode 50, Black Thursday. Fighter Command found itself still standing after the first day of Adler Talk. However, it must be remembered, it was only half-heartedly launched. There was much both sides did not know about the other. But as for the defenders, it was simple. They just needed to look around, see that they still had planes, pilots, and that no German invasion force was crossing the channel. As for the Germans, the invaders, it was different. They needed to know much more. Was their strategy working? How many planes and pilots did Fighter Command have left? Where were their weak points? How were the civilians holding up? How long did it take them to repair airfields? They would never know the answers to some questions and would not like the answers to others. As for specifics, they needed to know that attacking certain airfields, like the one at Manston, was a waste of time. That Airfields could and were being repaired within hours, as were radar towers, when bombed. 
This would force the attackers to go back again and again to run the same sorties. They certainly needed to know that the RAF had not lost nearly as many fighters as the German pilots claimed. In war, intelligence is key, but accurate intelligence is all. The ranking Luftwaffe officers were getting neither one. Still, things could be figured out in time, if one had the time to learn. And the Germans seemed to. But Bomber Command, another part of the RAF, which was carrying the war to the enemy, did not. August 13th, now known to all as Adlertag, was a proud day for Fighter Command, but not for the Bomber Branch of the British Air Force. In fact, by the Day of Eagles, Bomber Command had suffered tremendously. Despite regular warnings from the current Commander-in-Chief of Bomber Command, Air Marshal Charles Porter, the Air Ministry continued believing that bombing raids over parts of Scandinavia would have some merit on the war effort. But in truth, the risk wasn't worth the potential limited rewards. It certainly would not have helped forestall the invasion of Britain. Still, on August 13th, as the majority of fighter command was about to fend off Garing's greatest challenge so far, Blemens from 82 Squadron took off for a German air base at Aalborg in occupied Denmark. The weather was clear, even beautiful, but that was a bad thing. The bombers had standing orders to abort any mission if there were no clouds to hide in. And one bomber did turn around, claiming fuel problems. However, upon landing, the pilot was court-martialed. Unfair, perhaps, but still better than what waited for his comrades who went on with the mission. Every one of them fell victim to flak or fighters. As in most things, perception is key. It is or becomes reality. The Germans were now to the point of only wanting large raids to overwhelm their enemy. They needed the British people to see the impossibility of their resistance. Their enemy, the British, needed their people and the Germans to perceive that they were still very much in the fight. This was especially true for the civilians in the South and Southeast. To make this happen, any squadron that used Manston as a forward base was required to fly low over the nearby towns of Ramsgate and Dover. To show the people that the RAF were still there, providing a vigilant defense, no matter what Lord Haha in Berlin told them over the radio. Because many reporters were gathered in Kent in the southeast, expecting a German invasion at any moment, the war cabinet wanted the Admiralty to keep up appearances for morale. Again, hoping to control perception. So, a few ships braved Hellfire Corner each day to show everyone the channel was still deserved rightly to be claimed by the British. Of course, those ships had very little cargo in them. No sense in losing valuable material when making a point. However, the weather didn't care what anyone thought. The clouds were there, or they weren't. And on the morning of Wednesday, August 14th, they were. So the Luftwaffe was unable to launch large organized raids. The British knew this, but they also knew that if they were attacked, the bandits would be hard to find. So the British waited, and the Germans limited themselves to a few reconnaissance flights to the south, southeast, and east coast that morning. Fighters rose to intercept them, but everyone's fears 
were realized. The Germans couldn't effectively attack, and the British couldn't have found them anyways. But the clouds were thinning. Around noon, a feint was launched toward the Goodwin Sands, just off Deal, to the far southeast. But now that Adlertog was launched, this was not an insignificantly sized feint. There were many Stukas and many more ME-109s and 110s starting the day's assault. Fighter Command had to take this seriously, so about 40 fighters were activated. A large dogfight ensued, but the Luftwaffe had learned some things. Of the three groups within the German formation, one group had its MEs staying close. The other two sets of escorts were further away from their bombers to give them maneuverability. This mixed formula worked in that three British fighters were downed, with two more being damaged. Meanwhile, the Germans only lost one ME-109, and, to top it off, the bombers managed to sink a Goodwin lightship below. Not that it was the real target. The ship, like the bombers, was merely bait to get the RAF into the air. As large a formation as this was, it was still only meant to distract fighter command. While the dogfight was underway, another group, this one of ME-210s, struck at Manston. If the Germans were hoping for another flawless raid like the one on the 12th, they were disappointed. A hangar holding three Blemens was destroyed, but the AA guns at Manston got two escorting ME-109s. But on the upside, as the raiders flew off, they left 50 craters in the airfield. Deal, Dover, and Folkestone also received attention from the Stukas during this sortie. The day's combat had gone the Luftwaffe's way so far, but the indifferent weather was limiting their larger plans. Another reason for the lighter activity was that Gehring had ordered the Luftwaffe elites to his home at Karenhall. Kesselring, Loser, Sperla, and Osterkamp were on their way to explain what happened on the 13th. After the morning raids, and until 4 p.m., the southern coast only saw reconnaissance flights. By the afternoon, the weather was marginally better, so the Germans limited themselves to numerous small raids along the south between Weymouth and further west at Lyme Bay. After that, some of the raiders moved north and hit South Wales and Gloucester. Factories, railways, and airfields dominated the target list and those on the ground below suffered. Many dozens had their lives lost as high-explosive bombs were dropped on them as they were working in or around hangars. Some found themselves trapped inside as buildings caught fire. Those raids further north would end the daytime attacks as both sides were saving themselves for the next day of clear weather. They would not have to wait long. Of course, one side would regret it much more than the other. The fighting had been limited, but still intense, and the numbers squeezed in by both sides on these fewer raids produced casualties. Losses for the day were 8 for the RAF and 19 for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date were 165 and 309, respectively. Dowling spent the evening moving a few squadrons around, but basically, he had the setup he wanted. And the day's reshuffling had more to do with taking out squadrons that had suffered a higher-than-average rate of loss of original pilots.
Still, other squadrons that he felt were handling the pressure better were kept in place. That night experienced a few light raids in North Wales and in Aberdeenshire. In the northeast, a convoy was attacked off Kinnard's Head. Few interceptions were attempted, and Hartlepool, Manstead, and Hawkage spent their nighttime hours repairing their airstrips. The naval war continued as well. Around 8.34 p.m., 15 miles north of Ireland, U-boat 59 sank the British steamer Betty, which had been carrying 2,726 tons of rice from China to Liverpool. There were only four survivors from this attack, and they were picked up by the British anti-subtrawler HMS Man of War. The 30 other crewmen perished, and in a bit of payback, three British motor torpedo boats and two destroyers engaged three German Schnellboots, which were escorting a convoy from German-controlled Holland. Two German vessels were sunk. In Africa, the Italians continued to press on the British defenses at Tug Argon. The defenders were still holding out, but Major General Godwin Austin could see the inevitable before him. There were simply too many enemy troops with the right equipment and too few of themselves with very little equipment. That day, the Major General requested permission from General Wable, the Commander-in-Chief Middle East, to withdraw from British-held Somaliland. Thursday, August 15th, started with more unfavorable weather conditions for the Germans. So Gehring took his time in talking to his Luftwaffe commanders. To his credit, Gehring stayed mostly calm and thought his way through their problems. And Gehring, when coldly calculating, was a dangerous, intelligent opponent. He listened, analyzed the situation, and together, the small group of men drew up plans to get it right the next time. The one big change would be that, if the weather permitted, the two air fleets would be joined by Air Fleet 5, based in Norway. It was capable of sorties to the far northeast and east coast of Britain. The idea was simple, to bring the full might of the Luftwaffe to all possible points along the British east and southern coasts. Their numbers would do the rest. Here are the main points drawn up by Gehring, Sperla, and Kesselring by the end of the day. 1. Operations are to be directed exclusively against the enemy air force, including the aircraft industry. Shipping was only to be attacked when exceptionally favorable. Other targets were to be ignored. Note. The starving of Britain was left to the Navy. 2. That three fighter formations would accompany each Stuka formation. The first would go ahead and take on the defending fighters. The second would dive with the Stukas. The third would give cover overhead. Note. This defense ignored the fact that fighters, even at their slowest speed, could not but help outdistance the Stukas, especially during their dives. They would still be alone at their most vulnerable during a dive. 3. There must only be one officer in any crew flying over Britain. Note. Some bombers had four men in a plane, like the HE-111, so the Luftwaffe was losing more men than the RAF. Also, the number of lost senior flyers was staggering, 
And finally, four. Garen expressed his doubts about targeting or retargeting radar sites because not one of them had been put out of action so far. Note, this was simply his intelligence people unable to collect and pass on accurate information about the RDF towers. So the plans were made, and back in northern France, the early reconnaissance flights showed that the channel was cloudy, but a clearing was coming from the north. At some point in the morning, the sun would come out, and the most senior man in northern France, Kesselring's chief of staff, Oberst Paul Dykman, would have a say if the new strategy worked out that morning would be acted on. Dykman wasn't Kesselring's chief of staff for nothing. The organized attack of all three air fleets was a go. The first attack came around 11.30 a.m. as the last of the clouds disappeared. Two formations totaling just over 100 aircraft, 60 Ju-87s and 40 109s, went after the airfields at Hawkinge and Lim, and 54 and 501 squadrons were sent up to intercept. More should have been activated, but the radar plotters had a hard time telling how many formations were coming in. The Germans had stayed close together until the last possible moment, but then they split and went after their airfields. Try as they might, the RAF fighters got there after the 109s, who had already taken up a station high above. So as the defending fighters went for the bombers, the escorts dove and went after the fighters. Four British fighters were quickly shot down, and the rest simply could not get past the larger 109 force. Both airfields suffered significant damage. In fact, Lim would be inoperable for three days. But the real damage was done at Hawkinge, and the Luftwaffe never knew it. Four of the bombs missed their target at Hawkinge, but instead landed on the nearby road. Normally, this would have been fixed as quickly as the airfield, but beneath the road were power cables that carried electricity to the chain home station at Rye and the chain home low stations at Fornes and Dover. It would take the entire day to bring them back online. But the Luftwaffe could not know this, so they took their victories and flew away. But before crossing the channel, some of them flew by Manston to strafe it again. There, two Spitfires on the ground were destroyed. And because Manston was only three miles from the sea, there was little that could be done to protect it from a low-level raid besides a constant overhead patrol. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. 
And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com The number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com That's YahooFinance.com As impressive a showing as this was for the Luftwaffe, it was still only designed to focus Fighter Command's attention on the South. This was because Luftflot 5 was going to bring their might into the fray by attacking along the northeast and eastern coast. But chance ruined this carefully laid plan. What happened was that a convoy had left Hull around noon, so Fighter Command's 13 Group, the section farthest north, was on full alert. Still, Air Fleet 5's chances of overwhelming the British fighters up north was possible except for a mistake had been made by a navigator. At five minutes past noon, the radar operators to the northeast picked up a raid heading toward Edinburgh. So, 72 Squadron from Acklington and 605 Squadron from Dren were activated, while 79 Squadron was put on standby. Now, this is exactly what Air Fleet 5 wanted. The planes being plotted were two groups of HE-115 seaplanes, heading toward Dundee. Air Fleet 5 knew all about the fighters being stationed that far north, because their reconnaissance planes were always being shot down by them. So a distraction was called for. But really, how many planes could possibly be this far north if the German intelligence was telling the Luftwaffe that Fighter Command had only about 300 planes left that were serviceable? Yes, the raid and feint might be discovered, but it would probably be too little, too late. So the seaplanes flying to the northeast coast went as far as they safely could and then turned and headed for home. Just south of their flight plan, the real raid came on. 72 HE-111s were on their way to the airfields at Durham and Yorkshire. But the navigator in the lead 111 made a mistake and had them flying three degrees north from where they were supposed to be. Their escorts, 21 ME-110s, on the correct path further south, were starting to wonder. But because of this mistake, the seaplanes and the 111s were in close proximity, and therefore made a large plot on the radar screens. So much for sneaking in. Also, as the navigator realized his mistake and started the bombers more south, 72 Squadron moved in on them and unknowingly followed the bombers right to the escorts, as the two groups were just joining up. 72 groups saw this and called in for more help. 41, 607, and 79 squadrons responded. The fighters of 72 Squadron were about 4,000 feet over the 21 enemy fighters, who were themselves over and protecting the 72 bombers. It was then that one of the RAF pilots asked their leader, Ted Graham, if he saw the large formation below them. Graham, who had a stutter, replied, Of course I've seen the b b b b bastards I'm trying to figure out w what to do. And because they had not been spotted by the escorts, his plan was simple. He moved his squadron up sun and then came screaming down at the fighters. The escorts did what they could, but the RAF planes already had their speed built up and the element of surprise. The ME-110 scattered to survive, which then left a clear path 
to the bombers below. The initial burst from the British fighters caused the lead German fighter plane to explode in midair. A second one soon followed. The bombers were then hit, but at least they had a few seconds of warning and made the most of it. The majority of them dropped their loads into the water below and made for whatever clouds they could find. But then their situation went from precarious to impossible as the other RAF squadrons arrived. At least eight Heinkels and six ME-110s went down in the next five minutes. This victory cost the RAF two damaged hurricanes from 605 Squadron, and one had to be written off when it landed. And Archie McKellar, the leader of 605, was wounded, but back on duty soon after. This response by Fighter Command was possible only due to Air Chief Marshal Downing insisting on a certain number of squadrons be kept to the north. They were moved from the south to rest, but also to guard the north. And Downing was vindicated as there had been pressure to bring them back to the south as the fighting across the channel became intense. After the war, Churchill wrote, Downing, in his direction of fighter command, deserves high praise. We must regard the generalship here shown as an example of genius in the art of war. Henceforth, everything north of the Wash was safe by day. By now, 12 Group, located north of London, but still south of 13 Group, was on a high state of readiness. So the RDF plotters had no problem locating a 40-plus raid at 105 that afternoon. It seemed that they were heading for the fighter airfields of Church, Fenton, and Lincolnfield. So 616 and 73, those airfield squadrons, rose to intercept minutes later. Some of the planes from 615 Squadron hadn't seen action since Dunkirk and were a little worried about being up to snuff. But today, the Lady Fortune was with them. The raid consisted of 60 JU-88s, which had come over from Aalborg. The RAF fighters anxiously looked around for the JU's escorts but couldn't find them. What they didn't know was that the bombers were not unescorted. They were escorting themselves. About half of them were JU-88Cs, a Zerstor version, which meant their bomb load space was filled with machine guns, while a cannon had been put in the nose. It was hoping this trick would lure British fighters in, who would only learn the truth after it was too late. But these modified bombers were no match against the Hurricane or Spitfire, and as the bombers crossed the coast, their real target became apparent. The Bomber Command Airfield at Driftfield. The two fighter airfields and the bomber airfield were in close proximity, and this caused the slight delay in Fighter Command figuring out the true target. But minutes and seconds counted when dealing with fast-moving aircraft. The British fighters and German bombers soon clashed, and then swirled around one another. Still, some of the bombers got through, and dropped about 32 high-explosive bombs, and destroyed 10 Whitleys on the ground, and damaged six others. Six servicemen were killed, with another 20 injured. But the price for this success were two bombers and six of the modified 88Cs, and two more were damaged. The remaining bandits then made for Aliborg. 
But there was to be no let-up on this day. As the raiders just mentioned were heading back to Alleberg, another large raid was building up over the Pas-de-Calais. There were at least 88 Dornier 17s forming up. And although the Luftwaffe had suffered at the hands of Fighter Command for the last few weeks, they learned a thing or two. As the build-up continued, Air Pro Boons Group 210, which had taken off at the same time as many of the other aircraft, quickly formed up and shot across the channel, then swung north of Kent in the southeast. And whether or not they knew it, were not detected going over because of the earlier power outage. In fact, not until they were near Harridge were they spotted. So, 17 Squadron at Martlesham Heath was quickly activated. But what Fighter Command did not know was that the ME-210s were heading to Martlesham. But the mixture of 210s, 110s, and 109s got through this initial defense. So, more planes from 17 Squadron at Martlesham were ordered up. But as the second group of planes were taking off, the MEs hit. The 109s and 110s led the way as the 210s dive-bombed the airfield, causing severe damage. Several hangars and the officers' mess were destroyed. There were also eight service casualties. The airfield would be unusable for at least two days. Then the 109s and 210s climbed high above as the 110s made for home. It was then that 17 Squadron was joined by 1 Squadron, and as they went for the 110s, the other MEs dove down and quickly took out three of them, while damaging two more. Then all the MEs formed up and headed back for Calais. They had not suffered one casualty. Meanwhile, in conjunction with this attack, the larger formation that the MEs lifted off with made for Deal and for the British Southeast. The 88-plus bombers were escorted by 130 ME-109s, with 60 more fighters ahead of them conducting a sweep. Three squadrons were sent up, but as the large formation broke into smaller groups to pursue their individual targets, four more squadrons were activated. Still, the British fighters were unable to fight through the fighter sweep aircraft and escorts to get to the bombers, and because of this, the bombers got through to all of their targets. Dover, Deal, Bodsey, Eastchurch, Rochester, Hawkinge, Folkestone, and Lim were bombed. At Rochester, the Short Brothers factory was badly damaged, which was significant because it produced the Sterling, Britain's first heavy bomber. But after this attack, no bombers left the factory for the next three months and every place hit suffered casualties, civilian and service, electrical outages, and burst water mains. As the surviving RAF aircraft landed, in whatever state of damage they sustained, very few claimed a victory. But then, the Germans made two small mistakes. First, and this is not to take away anything from their successes of the day, they left one Geschwalder of 109s behind, to act as a defense. So, even more pressure could have been applied on fighter command, but nothing upset Garing more than British fighters raiding over the French coast. The second mistake was that the two Luftlots did not coordinate their attacks. 
Sperla and Kesselring were not competing with each other, but they certainly were not communicating with each other as they could have. So as the attacks in the southeast died down, it was Luflot's three's turn to attack further west. Two raids headed for Celsius Bill, while a third headed for Portland. It was just after 3 p.m. The groups that headed for Celsius Bill broke into three formations. One, made up of at least 12 JU-88s, headed for Andover. Another, of about 15 of the same aircraft, made for Worthy Down. The third group went after Middle Wallop, and each bomber group was escorted by ME-109s and 110s. All told, about 60 JU-88s and about 40 MEs were involved. Four squadrons rose to challenge them, but a majority of the bombers still got through. Bombs were dropped over the airfields of Middle Wallop, Odium, and Worthy Down. But comparatively little damage was done. It was certainly repaired quickly enough. But it showed both sides that, with sufficient fighter escort, bombers could get through. The group about to attack Portland had first headed for Warmwell, further to the northeast. However, British resistance was stiffer than expected, and so it was decided to attack their secondary target, the long-suffering naval base. About 47 Stukas, escorted by 60 109s and 40 110s, were now headed in a southwesterly direction. It was a little after 5 p.m. Bob Doe led 234 Squadron, and they were quickly joined by 213 and 87 Squadrons. The fighting was fierce and constantly moving, as the bombers hoped to strike the port and then head for the channel. For his own reasons, Bob Doe was convinced he was going to die today. But still, he led his men into the thick of it and managed to take out a few 110s. There were 13 of them lost altogether. The other squadrons went after the Stukas, and at least four of them were shot down. After dropping their loads, the remaining German aircraft made their way back to Cherbourg. The RAF had drawn blood, but Portland was again wrecked and on fire. Back to the east, Luflot II, controlling the northeast of France and the Netherlands, planned two more raids for the day. But even though these late-day attacks appeared to be a spur-of-the-moment thing, their targets did not reflect this. The sector stations at the center of Eleven Group's network, Biggin Hill and Kenley, were to be targeted. It's unclear why the Luftwaffe waited this long to attack these vital stations, but it probably had to do with wanting to take advantage of the day's confusion. As JG-26, or Fighter Wing 26's ME-109s passed over Dover and on to Kent for their last fighter sweep of the day, they were followed by a group of Dorniers heading for Biggin Hill. They had taken off about 6 p.m. It was a relatively small group of bombers, considering the numbers used that day, but, if not harassed on their approach, could mete out terrible damage. The 109s finished their sweep and started for home. It was then that they came upon 151 Squadron over Dover, and, because their radar was down, did not have the warning that they were used to. The 109s were able to bounce, or come in from above, unawares, on 151. Three of the British fighters were quickly shot down, 
and two more were damaged. Meanwhile, Airpro Bundesgruppe 210 had taken off for their last sortie of the day at 6.15 p.m. They were the darlings of the Luftwaffe for the last few days and were expected, and expected of themselves, another substantial success. And to increase their chances of success, were given an additional escort of 109s. They were on their way to Kenley and were pleased that that airfield was within range of the Luftwaffe's premier fighter. They met up over the channel, but in the evening haze somehow lost contact. The Emmys from the escort quickly became frustrated and, frankly, nervous, so turned and headed for home. The idea of a free hunt was not appealing. As Rubensdorfer, the leader of the two tens, realized he and his were alone, the idea of turning around never entered his mind. So his two tens and one o nines pressed on. Back to the first group, they made their way to Biggin Hill, unopposed, dropped their loads, causing considerable destruction, and flew home. They did not see a British fighter the entire time. But there was one problem. They did not hit Biggin Hill. Instead, they hit West Mullen, several miles to the southeast. Mullen was a satellite airfield and still under construction. It was not to be activated for several weeks. It wasn't until Rubensdorfer and his raiders flew over Seven Oaks that they were spotted by fighter command. There, the more northern RDF stations were still online. So, 111 Squadron from Croydon rose and was soon joined by 3-2 Squadron from Biggin Hill. What happened was this. Rubensdorfer spotted the fighters from 111 just as his planes reached the airfield. But he was here now and nothing was going to stop him. The 110s went into their dive at a 45-degree angle. The 8109s were right behind them, acting as a shield. The 110s unloaded their bombs, hitting the airfield buildings, as well as some factories close by. Their mission over, it was time to head for home. But the British fighters had other ideas. 32 Squadron, just arriving on the scene, went after the 109s while 111 Squadron went after the 110s. The 110s reacted to this by going into their defensive circle, hoping to cover each other. The 109s saw this and tried their own protection circle, but lost their comrades in the mist. Clearly, this was not going to work, so Rubensdorfer ordered the 110s to head for home. The bombers broke from their circle and raced for the coast but 111 Squadron was right behind them. The 109s headed for the coast as well, but 32 Squadron was right behind them. But then the two squadrons remembered their standing orders, and so they both went after the bombers. Everyone maxed out their speed, but the British fighters had no trouble staying with the bombers. They were all racing over Kent, and then Surrey, and then Sussex, but one by one, the 110s began to fall from the sky, smashing into the ground or crash landing at Red Hill, Crawley, and Ictham. Another 110 almost made it to the coast, but then was brought down by two fighters. It crash landed at Ho near Bexhill. In the end, only two severely damaged 110s would make it back to Calais. Lieutenant Horst Marks, one of the few surviving 109 pilots, 
loyal to Rubensdorfer, stayed with his commander. Over his RT set, the leader told Marx his wireless operator was dead and he was wounded. Before they could plan their next move, Marx's aircraft was hit and he was forced to bail out. Floating down, Marx kept his eyes on Rubensdorfer, who was able to carry on a few more miles, but ended up crash landing at Rutherfield. Marx landed, stopped a police car, gave himself up, and explained that he needed to get to his commander. The police took him into custody and took off for the crash site, hoping to catch another prisoner. Together, they raced for the downed and burning plane. Marx found his leader dead. They removed the body from the wrecked plane, and Marx found a letter in the dead man's pocket. It was from Kesselring, offering his congratulations to Rubensdorfer for being awarded the Iron Cross First Class. As the two remaining 110s landed back in northern France, they put their heads together and realized they had attacked the wrong airfield. Seven of their aircraft were gone, 13 of their own were captured or dead, and all this just to attack not Kenley, but its satellite airfield at Croydon. They couldn't have known it, but they did manage to kill six airmen and 62 civilians. The civilian casualties came from the Bonsoir soap and perfume factory as one of the bombs landed on its roof. Also, the H.E. Rolison Aircraft Works was severely damaged, but the airfield itself remained intact. As the surviving German pilots were taken to the hospital, they didn't have time to consider that Croydon was a part of the Greater London area and thereby off-limits by order of Hitler himself. The Fuhrer and Goering howled with rage when this mistake was discovered. Would Berlin be bombed tonight? That evening, Sperla and Kesselring returned to their Luftlots and surveyed the damage done. Everyone had exaggerated their numbers, again, purposefully or not, but, in the end, the Luftwaffe lost 75 aircraft that day, 7 109s, at least 28 ME-110s, 6 JU-87s, 17 JU-88s, 12 HE-111s, 3 Dornier 17s, and a few search and rescue aircraft. August 15th would become known as Black Thursday to the Luftwaffe. The RAF had lost 30 fighters and 17 pilots, with another 16 wounded. Total recorded losses to date were 195 and 384, respectively. That night, the raids were lighter than of late. Surely the men and their ground crews on the continent were exhausted. Between 10 and 11 p.m. that night, the East Coast received attention as raiders crossed the coast between the Wash and Scarborough. There, they focused attention on airfields, hoping to disrupt repair crews. Between midnight and 1 a.m., the Luftwaffe continued to focus on the East Coast, but also attacked in the Southeast. This time, airfields and port cities were their main targets. And finally, between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m., the Bristol area, its airfields and ports, were attacked. As the reports came back to Kesselring that night, he now had the responsibility of figuring out how to proceed within Gehring's new outlines and limits. 
And if Park could have known how successful his tactics were that caused many bomber losses for the Luftwaffe, he would have been pleased. And Goering was reacting to this. He wanted the bombers protected. So the strategy was now all about protection. From now on, the weight of attacks would be determined and limited by the number of available 109s for each sortie. But still, things were working. Surely close to half of Fighter Command's planes were destroyed. Kesselring knew he needed to change things here and there, but certainly he and Sperla would win. They just needed to simply keep attacking. There had been many small victories that day for the British, but in total they gave Churchill a larger victory, and he desperately needed it. The Prime Minister spent part of the day being mauled by MPs for his conduct of the war, and why he so urgently pressed back in 1936 for Britain to rearm. Did he know something back then? Did he not share it with the government as it was his responsibility? But that argument was nothing compared to the reaction when he announced an agreement to give the Americans 99-year leases on some of their bases in the Caribbean and Newfoundland in exchange for 50 destroyers for convoy protection. Needless to say, the Tory right used this to go on the offensive. But while this was going on, reports kept coming in about German losses. Churchill, sensing something, drove to Stanmore, watched and listened as more information came in. He then returned to the Commons and reported that the Germans had lost over 100 aircraft. He made sure Chamberlain, the leader of the Conservatives, was informed. He declared the day to be one of the greatest in history. It may have been too soon to tell if that was an apt description, but it was Churchill going on his own offensive. The Commons was anything but in his pocket. And in Africa, the situation grew worse. The Italians pressed their attack, confident in their numbers and equipment. That day, another hill was taken at Tug Argon. As darkness fell, the British forces withdrew back to Berbera. But the Black Watch, Royal Highlanders, along with African and Indian troops, made up a rear-guard position ten miles back from the Berbera Road. Meanwhile, events were coming to a head in the Mediterranean. Although Greece was neutral, it found itself leaning towards supporting the British, if not outright fighting with them. But the Italians wanted to focus on grabbing British possessions in Africa, and did not need this diversion. So Italy decided to intimidate the Greeks back into neutrality by attacking the Greek navy near the Aegean islands of Tinos and Syros. The Italian Air Force bombed several Greek destroyers and a merchant ship. Also, the Italian sub Delfino sank a World War I-era Greek cruiser while at anchor. The German Navy was busy applying its own pressure to the Greeks. Around 8 p.m. that night, west of Gibraltar, the Germans sunk the Greek steamer Aspasia, carrying manganese ore. All 19 members of its crew were killed in the explosion and subsequent fire. Further north, the German U-boat 51 sank the British tanker Sylvia Field, which was carrying 7,860 tons of fuel oil, 190 miles northwest of Rockall, Ireland.
Three of its crew died. The survivors were rescued by the Belgium trawler Rubens and the British minesweeping trawler HMS Newland. The Luftwaffe may have been struggling against the RAF, but the German Navy was more than doing its part for the war against Britain. And that day, the Kriegsmarine ordered the construction of 86 more U-boats. Next time, we'll see the frustration of the Luftwaffe pilots as they compare the comments of Hitler and Goering of the inevitable German victory in the air versus the tenacity of the RAF pilots. Soon Hitler will have to face this truth as he finds himself postponing the invasion date. Greetings from Central Virginia. I just wanted to give you a little bit more information about Lord Ha Ha, who was mentioned briefly in this episode. Lord Ha Ha was the nickname of several announcers on the English-language propaganda radio program Germany Calling, broadcasted by Nazi Germany Radio to audiences in Great Britain by medium wave and to the U.S. by short wave. The program Germany Calling started on September 18, 1939, and continued until April 30, 1945, when Hamburg was overrun by the British Army. But the nickname Lord Ha Ha generally refers to William Joyce, who was German radio's most prominent English-language speaker, and he started in late 1939. Joyce was American-born, but raised in Ireland. He got in trouble with the British government during the Anglo-Irish War, and he soon fled the island and found himself on his way to Germany. He was soon the main German broadcaster in English and held that position for most of the war. He eventually became a naturalized German citizen. He had a peculiar hybrid accent that was not of the conventional upper-class variety. His distinctive pronunciation of Germany calling, which could be described as a nasal draw, may have been the result of a fight as a schoolboy that left him with a broken nose. Through his broadcasts, the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda attempted to discourage and demoralize British, Canadian, Australian, and American troops and the British population within radio listening range. They also hoped to suppress the effectiveness of the Allied war effort through propaganda and to motivate the Allies to agree to peace terms, leaving the Nazi regime intact and in power. And though he was known to lie and exaggerate, many listened to him in hopes of finding out something about loved ones engaged against Nazi Germany. Joyce was captured by British forces in northern Germany just at the end of the war. He was tried and eventually hanged for treason on January 3, 1946. There were, of course, others used by Nazi Germany to demoralize their enemies and their citizens, like Lord Hee and Access Sally. But William Joyce, Lord Ha Ha, certainly had the attention of the British public during the Battle of Britain. And after I thank those who donated to the podcast, I'll give you a short snippet of one of his broadcasts. I was also going to talk about the waves or the women's voluntary service, but we're already pushing an hour here. But I'll cover them next time. But just to let you know, they were amazing, tireless women who were there to help the men that returned from Dunkirk 
as well as those who suddenly found themselves without homes during the battle. And they would go on to do much more for their country. So now I'd like to take a quick moment and thank some people for donations. First, Edward R. from Flowery Branch, Georgia. And then Catherine M. from Perth, Australia. And Luke W. in Kent, UK. And yes, Luke, I will be Skyping you sometime next week. Robert J. from Riga, Latvia. And then Ian M. from Hertfordshire in the UK. And then J.D. from London, UK. And I'd also like to thank Matty H. for ordering some CDs. Matty is from Glendora, California. So thank you, everyone. I really do appreciate it. And now here's a little snippet from Lord Ha Ha talking about the invasion of Denmark and Norway. The supreme command of the German Defense Forces announces the operations to occupy Denmark and the Norwegian coast have proceeded according to plan today. On marching into and landing on Danish territory, no incidents occurred anywhere. No significant resistance was offered along the coast of Norway, except near Oslo. Resistance there was broken during the afternoon, and Oslo itself was occupied. The German minister to Norway, Dr. Breyer, received representatives of the Norwegian press today and informed them of a new appeal which he has addressed to the Norwegian government. It runs as follows. In recalling this morning's appeal, I wish once more to draw the attention of the Norwegian government to the fact that any resistance to Germany's action would be completely senseless and would only lead to an aggravation of Norway's position. I repeat that by her measures, Germany does not intend to infringe the territorial integrity or political independence of the Kingdom of Norway either now or in the future. 